Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada. The subject of God's wrath is not an easy one, but it's important to understand. As we continue our series, This is Our God, Dr. Newfeld will help us offer a thoughtful picture of the God of wrath and jealousy. So let's begin today's message. If you come from a relationship in which you were abused, either, say, in marriage, or perhaps you grew up with an abusive father, or perhaps you spent years working in an abusive work environment, the idea of a God of wrath and jealousy might strike you as an attribute unworthy of God. We've all heard of people flying off the handle in a drunken rage, filled with wrath, willing to inflict harm. Furthermore, verbal abuse can be as harmful as physical abuse because over time, verbal abuse creates emotional scarring that leaves the victim unable to function with confidence or to be balanced in their relationship with others. Victimizers are never to be lauded. This attitude cannot be compared to the perfections of God. And it might do absolutely no good to tell you that God is also a God of love, for if you have been around abusers, you'll know that many of them can be delightful and kind at certain points in time. And then when you catch them at the wrong time, well, look out. It's their kind demeanor in certain situations that, that hides who they are. It masks their identity. And unfortunately, this is the view that some of us have of God. Sometimes he's love and, and sometimes he's wrath. And that is simply unworthy of God. Because of the prevalence of abuse, many people simply can't get themselves to believe that God should be filled with wrath at all. And to be sure, unless we understand exactly what the Bible means when it speaks about the wrath of God, we're going to get the wrong idea. But before we jump right into the passage and speak about this matter, let's ask ourselves another question. Are there circumstances that legitimately demand wrath? For instance, when the victorious Allied soldiers first entered the Nazi death camps and discovered not just the horrid abuse of prisoners, but the scientific approach to exterminating bodies with precision and efficiency. When these soldiers first saw what had been done there, many were filled with unspeakable shock, but also a fierce anger. This would not be swept under the carpet. Those responsible would be tried with war crimes. Even if you had to chase these monsters to the ends of the earth for decades into the future, what was done in this place must never be forgotten. And the case I've just described, the, the failure to be angry is a failure to love. There are times when decency and uprightness of character demanded anger. When anger is absent, it actually marks a callous disregard for what is true and just and decent. Do you see what I've done? I've given two pictures of wrath. One was the picture of a drunken man beating his wife and children, and the other the picture of a war crimes investigator who simply will never let crimes against humanity be forgotten. One acts when out of control, and the other acts completely in control and acts consistently with justice. Both are pictures of wrath. In one sense, we might say that all anger is anger, but the context of anger makes all the difference. So let's be clear. There are only a few books in the Bible that make no mention of the wrath or the anger of God. You know, I once did a study on this thing and found out that even in books like the Song of Solomon, that book that celebrates pure sexual love, even there a mention is made of the anger of God. In chapter 8, verse 6, jealousy is compared to the flames of the Lord. The reference is to God's consuming fire. 
And so whatever we think about it, the Bible mentions God's wrath, his anger, and even his fury on multiple occasions. In Exodus 32, after the sin with a golden calf, God says, leave me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them. And in Romans 1 verse 18, Paul says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of men. And in John 3 verse 36, we read, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God rests on him. Indeed, the most famous Bible verse, John 3.16, hints strongly at the idea of the anger of God. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish. See, once we understand that we are perishing because the wrath of God rests on the human race, we see clearly that salvation consists in being saved from God's anger. And so our task will be not only to take note of the fact that these passages are undeniable, but to understand the context of that wrath. And it's also necessary to say that God is not sometimes loving and sometimes just and sometimes wise and sometimes merciful and sometimes angry, but all of these attributes are essential to God. He is all of these things at the very same time. So let's begin. How are we to understand this matter? Let's step back for a moment and return to a discussion that we had sometime earlier in this series. We notice that according to Isaiah 43, verse 7, that God created the world for his glory or as an external expression of his grandeur. But as we continue to read our Bible, we soon become aware that God does everything for his glory. In Psalm 25, verse 11, we read, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. See, on what basis does David want his sins forgiven? He calls for it on the basis of God's great name. And by the way, that's also what 1 John 2 verse 12 teaches. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. The motivation which determined that God would forgive our sins was to proclaim his great name for the sake of his great name or for the sake of his glory. Now think of other passages in the Bible that we know. Psalm 23, verse 3 says, He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. For Samuel 12, 22, Samuel instructs Israel by saying, For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Why won't God abandon Israel in their sin? Well, because it would badly reflect on God. And God is concerned about the greatness of his name. Or consider Isaiah 37, verse 35. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And by the way, doing things for the sake of David means that God had a promise that he made to David. And if God now broke that promise so many years later, it would reflect badly upon God's reputation or his great name. Isaiah 48, verse 11 says, For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. We could go on quoting verse after verse, but read your Bible long enough, and it soon becomes clear that God is always saying that he is acting for his glory or for the sake of his great name. Now, before we go on, let's consider how different God is than we are. If we meet any human being who acts for the sake of their great name, we immediately hold them up to scorn. 
If, for instance, I were to make the claim that, you know, I preach on the radio for the sake of my great name, well, if that were true, might I advise you to stop listening to me immediately? See, this kind of motivation is the motivation of the egomaniac, someone who definitely needs therapy and definitely should repent. Now, here's the question. Why is it wrong for us to act for the sake of our glory, and why is it right for God to act for the sake of His glory? And the answer to that question is so important. If we act for the sake of our glory, we're fooling ourselves, for we are not altogether glorious, and we certainly aren't worthy of all praise. We have sins. We make mistakes. We're not infinite or timeless or present to all spaces at all times. We do not possess all knowledge and all wisdom, and we constantly come up short. But God is worthy of all praise. His perfections are perfections. He is worth more than all the created world combined. Indeed, if God were not motivated to always act for the sake of his glory, God would be unrighteous. Think of it this way. Let's say that a man rescues a child from a burning car. Later on, you find out that he was not going to do anything at all. He had already decided that he wasn't going to risk his life for a child that he didn't know. But the mother of that child was very rich and promised to give him $5 million for doing so. And this man reasoned that even though he would not risk his life for a child, he would do so for $5 million. If he had $5 million, why, he could retire and get a home on a beach in Hawaii and buy a beautiful boat and live in luxury. He decided he would risk his life for such a dream. Would you think that such a person is praiseworthy? Well, no, he would not be praiseworthy. Any action that is taken for a lesser motive diminishes the praiseworthiness of that action. And the same is true for God. If God were motivated by anything other than for the greatest of all motives, the glory of his great name, any other motive would diminish God. The reason we proclaim that all God does is praiseworthy is not just because of the things that God does, but because of the reasons he does them. God's highest reason for acting is always the glory of his name. More when we come back. When we ponder the subject of God's wrath, it can make us uncomfortable, an attribute of God we'd rather just not focus on. But when we understand it correctly, it's clear from Scripture that wrath and jealousy are essential to knowing who God is, especially when we consider the fact that God's ultimate purpose is to glorify his own great name. Stay with us as Dr. Neufeld continues to unravel the biblical reasons for God's wrath. Thanks for listening today. Are you on the mailing list to receive our new publication called Truth and Life magazine? Well, just this month, we launched a new resource that will be sent six times a year to friends and listeners of Back to the Bible Canada and Laugh Again. Instead of our formal publications of Bible Matters and Life Matters, we've now combined them to create one larger magazine speaking to a greater audience. Each edition features articles from Bible teacher Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Again's own Phil Calloway, and much more on a range of issues pertaining to life and faith. If you'd like to receive Truth in Life magazine, just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. (music) 
In forbidding the worship of idols, God says, and I'm quoting Exodus 20, verse 5, You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Deuteronomy 6.15 repeats that and builds on that thought. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. Now, the jealousy of God is not only expressed in negative terms, but it's also expressed in positive terms. In Ezekiel 39, verse 25, we read, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I will be jealous for my holy name. The jealousy of God is always framed within the context of God acting on behalf of his glory. God is portrayed as jealous, willing to, in wrath, protect and defend his reputation. All of God's expressions of wrath are directly related to defending his glory. Let's go back to where we started. I gave two examples of wrath. One was the example of an abusive man out of control, exercising his anger and destroying his wife and children. The other example is the example of a war crimes investigator who has seen the death camps and the millions of Jews who were exterminated in an act of villainy. Well, words fail. Both are angry, but the motive of their anger varies. Our problem with the idea of the wrath of God is that at first reading, it seems to us that God seems like the abusive man rather than the determined war crimes investigator. After all, God is defending his glory, which is precisely what the abusive man is doing. And the war crimes investigator is defending the glory of millions of victims. See, one is a worthy motive and the other's not. And from our way of thinking, the one who acts for the glory of another is always the righteous man. And the one who acts for his own glory, well, that's always the villain. And it's right here that we're required to think. God is unlike everyone else. To whom will you compare me and count me equal, says the Holy One. Not only is God wise and omnipotent and just and omnipresent and loving and truthful and good and merciful, but God is also before all things, and in God all things hold together. If God were at any moment to remove his sustaining hand from the universe and from our lives, we would cease to exist. Furthermore, there can be no good if there is not a standard of goodness, and God himself is the measure of all things. There can be no standard of beauty or of love if God is not the measure of these things. Indeed, not only is God unlike the abusive husband who is not altogether glorious, God is also unlike the war crimes investigator. As noble and as righteous as his cause is, it pales in comparison to the glory of God. See, all of humanity taken together, even six million innocent victims, are not as valuable and as worthy as is God. His glory and his worth outweighs the sum total of everything. And it is for this reason that we must say it is righteous for God to act in such a way that no human being must ever act. See, let me illustrate. Years ago, the then-famous Canadian abortion doctor, Henry Morgenthaler, said that God aborted more babies than he ever did. He concluded that if God could destroy a baby in the womb, what could possibly be wrong with him doing the same thing? Now, if you can get by the obvious lack of concern that Morgenthaler had for either God or unborn babies, and the brazenness out of which he made the statement, it would be important to make an observation. Using that line of reason, we might say, 
that since God ends the life of every single human being at death, what would be wrong with Hitler ending the life of six million Jews in Nazi concentration camps? And the answer must be clear and resounding. There are all manner of times in which God acts in a way that we must never act. I wonder if you've ever heard someone say, who do you think you are, God? Well, behind that statement is the innate understanding in all of us, whether Christian or non-Christian, that God has the right to act in ways that we must never act. Or consider that sometimes when geneticists do experiments on human beings, we make a very serious charge that they're attempting to play God. See, what do we mean? Again, we all intuitively know that God, because he is God, and yes, God does think he's God, acts in a way that we must never act. We're not talking about an idol or a God that's the extension of our imaginations. We're talking about the God, ever blessed, ever glorious, who acts at all times to defend the glory of his name. No higher or more virtuous motive can ever be found. And by the way, when we read Romans 3.25, in which the cross of Jesus is explained in great detail, Paul adds, this was to show God's righteousness. See, for Paul, The importance of the cross is that it showcases the righteous God. It expresses the character of God. When God poured out his wrath onto his son as our sin substitute, God demonstrated how he felt about sin. He showcased God's fierce holiness and his unwillingness to allow sin to stand. And you know, to me, The thing that fills me with awe is the fact that at the very place where God demonstrated how vile and horrible sin is, in that very place is also where grace and mercy and the love of God are to be found. When God displays wrath, he also displays mercy. Oh, the depths of the wisdom of God. And this is also the reason we delight in God. Yes, God is altogether delightful, but his glory is displayed in the forgiveness of sins and in the gift of eternal life and an invitation to come and enter his presence and to be adopted into his family in the promise that we will be given the amazing privilege of ruling and reigning over the works of his hands and in the sure knowledge that we who were once the enemies of God have been invited to eat at his table. It was Anselm of Canterbury who lived from 1050 to 1117, that that great Christian teacher who said, God maintains nothing with more justice than the honor of his dignity. Jonathan Edwards, the great American pastor from the 1700s said, God regards himself infinitely above his regard for all other things. I had a seminary professor whose name was Daniel Fuller, who once taught me the following. He said, for God not to oppose fully those who oppose the worth of his person would be for God to be unrighteous in not having full delight in the worth of his own person. And if God himself did not delight fully in the worth of his person, then he would be saying, in effect, that the knowledge of himself is not really worthy of everything. Then he would no longer be the loving God that he is in having created man, that he might enjoy the worth of God's person forever. And that for us is the real issue, isn't it? I know that many of us, even after this broadcast, will still struggle with the wrath of God. We might still ask, why would a God of love send people to hell and allow questions like that to continue to plague us? But what is the alternative? 
If God did not defend the honor of his glory to such a degree that it deserved infinite punishment, he would be saying that his glory is not of infinite worth. And if his glory is not of infinite worth, if indeed his glory is secondary to something else, then all of us are already sinking towards hell. As scary as the wrath of God sounds, if we understand how the wrath of God was poured out onto Jesus on the cross, we might find his wrath the very avenue in which we enter into the deep, deep love of Jesus. For nothing but the cross and no one but Jesus himself could glorify God in a way that satisfies what righteousness and love demand. And when the father counts the suffering of his son as wholly adequate to repair his injured glory, we are told two things. We are told what is worth more than anything else. It is the glory of God. As Jesus prayed on that night when he was betrayed, Father, glorify yourself. And secondly, we're also told that the wrath of God and the love of God are not two separate things. As wrath was poured out onto Christ, the Father esteemed the death of his Son and glorified himself by granting us mercy. John, this is a bit of a curious subject because I think People struggle maybe with the idea of God's wrath. In fact, do we experience that wrath today? Or is that just what he's about? Or or am I experiencing my day-to-day living? Yeah, two things to that. I think, first of all, for believers, we know with certainty that the wrath of God was poured out onto Christ so that we bear it no more. None of us as believers are under the wrath of God. However, Ephesians and uh, Romans teaches us that the entire earth is under the wrath of God right now, and that is when our sins are not forgiven, God will defend his glory against our rebellion against his purposes. God will defend the honor of his great name. And that's what we're talking about. And that's why I think the idea that sometimes people have that, you know, in the Old Testament, God seemed more wrathful than in the New Testament is in fact not true. There are enough wrath passages in the New Testament as well, except that this wonderful mercy of the death of Jesus on our behalf simply covers everything else and leaves us objects of mercy. Do you struggle to accept the notion of the wrath of God? Well, this has been a difficult but important study on how God's wrath and jealousy are displayed through his character and, of course, the cross of Jesus Christ. We'll never fully grasp the love of God until we consider his holy wrath and his justice in dealing with a fallen world. I hope that today's message has been enlightening in your spiritual journey with God and helped you get a biblical understanding of the subject. Be sure to listen tomorrow as Dr. Neufeld takes a a look at two more attributes of God, his truth and righteousness. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Well, in only a few months away, we're excited about the opportunity to take guests on our very first Alaska cruise. Hosted by Back to the Bible Canada and Laugh Again, we look forward to a week of sailing together and experiencing one of the most popular destinations in the world. From July 3rd to the 10th, sail with us on the Alaska Adventure Cruise, along with Bible teacher Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Again's Phil Calloway, and also guest worship artist Amanda Stott. We'll be departing from Vancouver, and our itinerary includes visiting the ports of Ketchikan, Icy Strait Point, and Juneau. Together, we'll discover the beauty of Alaska while enjoying a fun and relaxing getaway. 
and more importantly, a time of restoration in God's Word. There are only a few spots left, so for more information and to register before space runs out, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425.